Absolute Zero by Robert B. Fitton. Episode 14, Where Is This Truck Going? As Brian Carey lay unconscious in a tiny, dimly lit hospital room in Chicago, the MG sped down Interstate 75 through Central Florida. After switching on to other superhighways, they breezed past Orlando in mid-afternoon and soon were seeing signs for Cape Canaveral, Titusville, and Cocoa Beach. Darby had made up her mind that the truck was heading to Cape Canaveral, while Phillips was not sure where it was going. He had kept relatively close to the truck ever since they learned of Carrie's accident, always keeping it within sight. The truck turned south as it neared Titusville, traveling on a narrow road. Phillips knew their journey was nearing completion, and his heart pounded with an uneasy expectation that they were going to have to face the crisis right now. The truck put on its brake lights, and Phillips brought the MG to a crawl. The mighty truck waited for the oncoming traffic to pass. It finally turned left, down a dark, dirt road with heavy, overhanging foliage, which blocked out the light of day. The truck bounced into darkness. Several soldiers appeared with weapons standing in the underbrush. Keep going, Gary. Keep going. Is it the ocean just a few hundred yards down here? It must be, said Phillips as he drove past the road. Yeah, I saw it back there, but we have no way of knowing where they're going. If we go down that road, we'd never make it. Then we have to get to higher ground. In Florida? Are you kidding? They were suddenly approaching the next town when Phillips grew panicky. Then we just have to go back there on foot, that's all. The church. The church yelled Darby as she pointed toward a bell tower of a Spanish-style church in the center of town. You're an angel, he said, looking up at the orange-tiled roof. May not even be open, said Phillips as they ran from the car across the parking lot to the front doors of the church. Don't be silly. Churches are always open, she said as Phillips clutched the handles of the doors. With a hefty yank, he almost pulled his arms out of the sockets. She walked up to the doors and pulled down on the latch, opening the doors easily as Phillips watched. As she stood in the doorway, he rolled his eyes and they both ran inside. Quickly, they found the door to the bell tower and headed up the damp and musty staircase to the top. Up the top, Phillips leaned over a wall as he and Darby paused to catch their breath. In front of him was the blue Atlantic with a peninsula running a few miles along the shoreline. The land on the shore was thickly overgrown and in front of it was a white sandy beach, but no Walsh truck. I think we blew it, Darby, he said. I don't see the truck. Here, look for yourself. He offered the binoculars to her. Can you see the road? All I see is woods. A few sailboats offshore near the peninsula. A few speedboats. No sign. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold it, she said quickly. I see it too, said Phillips as he saw another truck, similar to a dump truck, coming out of the woods about three miles away. She handed the field glasses back to him. Boy, there are soldiers all over that beach, Darby. Lucky we didn't go down that road. What are they doing with these bodies? she asked. The truck turned around in a semicircle near a boat landing and back toward the breaking waves. One of the motorboats they had seen now, now was heading directly toward the landing as the truck stopped. The boat also began to decrease speed and a man in a white sports shirt and plaid pants threw a rope out to a similarly dressed man who was standing on the dock. Maybe they're dumping the bodies at sea, exclaimed Phillips as he grew excited. Is that any reason to go after Carrie? Maybe it's enough to them. The sea would make a perfect burial ground, said Phillips. But why go through all this rigmarole? Right, who's going to find them in the ocean? They're going to the rear of the truck now, opening the doors, putting a ramp into that truck. Two guys on the boat, casual dress, plaid pants, sports shirts, other guys coming down the ramp. 
This is weird. Shaking hands with the boat guys, they know each other. Now the boat guys are going up the ramp. Nothing's happening, he said as he gave her the glasses. That is weird. They must be having difficulty. Wait, here comes the other guys. Oh my God. Oh my God. Phillips grabbed the binoculars and held them with both hands. Clarence Early, the guy that was executed. He's alive. Early was alive, but he was inside a round plastic bubble, perhaps six or seven feet in diameter. It rested on a huge blue cart, which was brought down the ramp by remote control. Early was sitting rather subdued in a fluorescent orange shirt and pants and white sneakers. The man maneuvered the cart down the dock as the other men ran onto the boat to take the cart aboard. Gary, it brought him back to life. How is this possible? Maybe they never killed him at all, summarized Phillips. He scanned the coastline to the south. When he looked back the other way, he could see the bubble now was safely inside the boat, and they were releasing the lines. Phillips studied the boat's course for a few minutes and then pointed southward. I see an inlet through the binoculars, Darby. It's down there. Come on, he said as he led her down the staircase. Well, where are we going? She asked, her words echoing around the tower. To get a boat. This marina about a mile south of here. I saw it. We have to get in there before that boat leaves the inlet and goes out to sea. Several minutes later, the MG slid into a gravel parking lot in front of the marina. They ran down to the docks. He asked a small boy how he could get a boat, and the boy said he'd call his uncle. Both Darby and Phillips grew impatient, waiting for the man as the boat carrying the bubble was nearing the inlet. Howdy, said a scrawny, unshaven man with a, with a cut-off t-shirt. We need a boat right away, said Phillips as he ran up to the man. What kind do you folks need? He asked as he took a cigarette out of the pack from his pants pocket. One with a big gas tank. We need it now, pleaded Phillips. Over there, he said, pointed to a fair-sized unpainted boat to the right. Five dollars an hour plus gas. Keys are in the boat, he said, exhaling. Deposit. Do you want a deposit? Asked Darby, speaking quickly. Pay when you get back. Just leave your driver's license over here. They both dug out their driver's license and handed it to the man, and they ran over to the unkempt boat. It was filled with assorted debris and a little bit of water. Phillips lifted his legs over the mess and hurried to the controls located in a small cabin up front. He turned the keys and the engine cranked very slowly. After several attempts to start the boat, he looked back at the man in the undershirt. You sure this thing is seaworthy? asked Phillips. The man flicked an ash off the end of his cigarette and then made his way to the boat. Phillips stepped aside as the man turned the key starting the boat. He gave Phillips a fleeting look of indignation and returned to the dock. Carefully, Phillips removed the throttle, piloting the small boat out of the marina into the open waters in front of the peninsula. You're a few miles down there, Gary, said Darby as she followed the path of the boat with the field glasses. However, the constant churning of the waves made tracking the boat difficult. There it goes, it's turning out to sea. Even if we maintain equal speed, we can't catch it. No, but we can close the gap until they get to wherever it is they're going. I want a good look at that guy early. I don't understand how he could possibly be alive. And that bubble, why that bubble? At least we know why they were so paranoid about it, she added. They didn't want Carrie rattling the boat on this whole operation. Poor Brian, we don't even know if he's alive. We have to call Beetle House again when we get back. Phillips brought the boat south and through the inlet, passing land into open sea. Phillips turned from the console, his hair rippling in the sea-moist air. We have to find out about Carrie when we get back and call Beetle House.
Yeah, if we get back, we don't even know what these people are doing, Gary. The sun was low in the western sky above the water as Phillips dug out some old charts of the area. The land had been out of sight for some time now, and we feared they may have gone too far out to sea. They kept an equal pace with the boat, but Phillips had no idea where they were or where the boat with the bubble was headed. As Darby attempted to follow the darkened image of the boat, something else on the horizon caught her attention. It's another ship, Gary. Out there, she shouted loudly as she gave him the glasses. Take a look for yourself. Phillips held the glasses, but was still engrossed by the charts. Lost our position. I don't even know where we are, he said as he looked eastward. It could be another boat. I don't know. It's very dark out there. Some kind of buoy. A platform. Of course, that's it. I wish it was midday rather than sunset, complained Phillips as he pushed the throttle to the floor. As they moved closer, he distinctly made out the shape of an object. The orange sunlight gave it an eerie glow. It resembled more than anything else a conventional offshore drilling rig with a higher than usual tower above the surface of the platform. Phillips slowed the boat, cutting the engines in order to keep the prudent distance. The boat with the bubble was docking between the supports underneath the tall platform above. Once the boat was safely docked, an elevator on the side of the supports descended from the platform. The boat rested in the waves directly below the elevator's path and glided it gently onto the deck of the boat. Blue carp began to move with the bubble, and Clarence Early inside rolled into an open elevator. The elevator rose, and the boat moved underneath the platform. It was at this time that Darby saw the image of five high-powered speedboats shooting out like bullets from beneath the supports. Gary, dot the boat. Turn it around. These guys are coming after us. Phillips didn't question her word, and he ran over to the controls. It took several tries, but he started the boat. He turned around to the west and pushed the throttle to the limit, and they headed toward the brightly burning sun. It was quickly apparent, however, they had no chance to escape the faster boats. They've got guns, Gary, she said as they moved in. They're going to catch us. Phillips looked back. The boats were less than a few hundred yards away and closing fast. Follow my lead, he said as he instructed and then cut the engines. Your lead? They know why we're out here. It's all over, Gary. It's all over. Just follow my lead, he ordered as the five boats themselves slowed and surrounded the drifting boat. One of the boats, with three men with silver construction hats, moved alongside of the old boat. Each of the other boats had about a half a dozen soldiers and automatic weapons trained on Phillips and Darby. Three men in silver construction hats boarded the boat. May I ask what you're doing on this unrestricted water? asked the burly man with dark eyes. Restricted waters? asked Phillips with a high school child naivete. Sir, we, we lost our way. We left Melbourne a few hours ago. Left following us. We've been tracking you for at least three hours, he said with his large hands on his hips. No, we were trying to follow the boat so we could get back to land, said Phillips, who was now getting scared. Sure, sure. Search the boat, he ordered the other men. It's true said Darby, trying to salvage their story. We can't read the charts. One of the men brought over a vinyl booklet containing the registration to the boat. He read it quickly and looked up at him. Large mariner in Melbourne, I'll ask you again, why were you following us? Pleasure cruise? Asked Phillips, knowing they were not going to believe the story. Pleasure cruise? 
Ripley. He yelled to one of his men, and the rest of the men came to the front of the boat. Yes, sir. Ripley, this boat is registered to the Largo Marina, about two miles south of the transfer site. Get it back there now. It'll be dark when you arrive, so just talk and we'll send someone after you tomorrow. What about the owner? Will he ask any questions? Just get out there and don't let him see you, he said as he turned back to Darby and Phillips. Okay, you two, in our boat, let's go. They crawled off the old boat and into the smaller one, which was constructed of fiberglass. The burly man stepped aboard and pointed toward the platform. All the boats moved away at once, and the large boat chugged towards shore. The fiberglass boats flew over the waves as the cold wind cooled the passengers and approached the platform. Phillips was at a loss to understand why they had not been killed on the spot, and his apprehension deepened as the boats slowed under the supports of the platform. It was engineered like the wooden crossbeams under a long pier, but these beams were metal and painted gray. The elevator was already in place as the boat coasted up to it. Two men in the same silver-gray construction hats stood inside the open elevator and caught the rope from the boat as it docked. Surprisingly, they were going to be brought aboard the platform. The other boats returned to their positions under the supports as Darby and Phillips were instructed to get inside the elevator. The men helped them inside. The rope was thrown back and the elevator rose into the sky. Join us next time for another episode of Absolute Zero by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.